0: There were there are few things more important to the to the war effort in World War II than coal. Without, without coal, right, there's no there's no iron, there's no steel, so they can't make the things they needed to fight the war. Um, there's no shipping. There's not nearly enough electricity to make stuff. Even if we could, but we couldn't. If we didn't have enough coal, right? It's one of the raw materials of war. Every leader on every side of that war knew how important it was, which is, is why, at one point during the war, Winston Churchill, he was meeting with British uh, labor leaders, and to keep them encouraged and to let them know that they appreciated how vital uh, they were. Churchill told, apparently, the story goes, he told these labor leaders something he could see in his mind's eye. He said, at the end of this great conflict, we are going to have this massive parade through the streets of London. And in that parade, there's, of course, going to be uh, sailors and, and airmen and soldiers being cheered by a grateful nation. But Churchill said that he suggested at the end of the parade in the place of honor, we have a long line of dirty, stained coal miners. And in his mind eye, he said, I can picture... The parade getting to that point and onlookers questioning these miners and saying, what are you doing out there? Where were you when your country was at war? And then the quote goes, Churchill said, and then from 10,000 throats would come the answer. We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal." Nearly every successful effort you can think of is sort of like that. On every team, in every business, there are people who are more public, there are people who are more seen, but but there is no successful business, team, church, organization, whatever, that is successful with however they measure success, without the efforts of lots and lots of mostly anonymous sort of worker bees. Winston Churchill knew the Allied effort in World War II was as dependent on a coal miner that no one would ever know as it was upon a metal recipient. Well, we're still in the opening verses of the fifth major uh, section of the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 12 through uh, 15, 13. And in this section, Paul's going to be teaching us sort of what Christianity should look like. What the obedience that comes from our faith looks like. Things we should do, things we should avoid. He started. He's already told us we're only, we're only three verses in. But he's already told us the most logical thing we can do if we're Christians, if we believe that when Jesus went to the cross, he was in my place. Like, that's what I deserve to have from God. That was the wrath of God being poured out on one who didn't deserve the wrath of God. That should be me. He went there in my place. And when I believe on Jesus... The gospel tells us, and Paul explained this in Romans 1-11, through the gospel says that becomes effective for me. I'm justified by faith. God declares me to be no longer guilty and there's no wrath left from God toward me. If I believe God has done that, then, chapter 12, Paul said, the most logical thing I can do is give my entire life back to God. If he is the one that can make All things work together for good for those who love him. and He is better at directing my life than I am. How do we pull that off? We have to be ready to be different from the world. Romans 12, 2. We can't be like the world and give our lives to God at the same time. How do we do that? Well, we start by changing the way we think. We're ready for this total transformation of my life by God that starts in my thoughts. Allowing God to renew my mind. And that starts, Romans 12:3, by the way I think about myself. Do not think more highly of yourself. Then you ought, Paul told us last week, and he warned us against pride and toward humility. That's where we are so far. And then today, Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And I really want to emphasize that we have to take, even though I've, made a one-week gap between Romans 12.3 and Romans 12.4. They're not that far apart in the book of Romans, right? The, The command to be humble, to not think more highly of yourself than you ought, is right with today's passage. It's part of today's passage. In fact, anytime you see Paul talking about spiritual gifts, he'll be talking about humility and the love of other people. They always go together. Whatever we learn today has to be taken in that sort of context. Uh, Others focused. An accurate view of myself and being others focused. Because uh, there's an old joke that goes something like, most Christians want to serve God, but in an advisory capacity only. Right? We want to serve God mainly by telling Him what He ought to be doing right now. Right? It's, it's funny to me, but it's kind of true. When we give our lives to God, He's always going to ask us to do stuff for others. Always. And... It is really easy to talk about spiritual gifts or think about what I ought to be doing. It's really easy to slip back into pride and think, I want to do something that will make others see what I'm doing. Um, it's, it's really common to have a desire, really, to be seen as someone who serves more than I have a desire to actually keep my face to the coal of this Christian walk, which is serving and loving others. Consistently, my hand's dirty. It's frustrating. It's hard. It's thankless. We need to keep our faces to the coal of real Christianity. So today, Paul is going to talk about Spiritual gifts. So we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk a little bit about kind of some of the beliefs of our church as it responds to, corresponds to some spiritual gifts. But just make sure we stay in Paul's context. It's a sandwich between humility and coming up soon, love of other people. And it's no accident that our spiritual gifts are in the middle of that because they're just some ideas of how I might glorify God by serving others in a loving way. Let's let's read our passage, Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. This is the New American Standard uh, Bible that's on the screen with the exception of one word that I uh, will get to later. Romans 12, 4 through 8. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And here are some gifts. If your gift is prophecy, exercise that according to the proportion of your faith if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation or he who gives with liberality or i like the word simplicity better he who leads with diligence and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness there's our passage paul starts with what i think is paul's most common like metaphor illustration he did this all the time. Paul tended to talk about a local church and compare it to like a human body. And the people who make up a local church are body parts of that body. In fact, this is so common, it became such a part of our lingo. It's we now, what we think of when we hear the, the word members. It comes from Paul. When you hear the word member, you don't think of a body part, which is what that word means. You think of a part, somebody who's a part of a team is a member of that team, right? Or a member of a church or a member of the Lions Club, right? That word means body part. My members are my fingers, my arms, my nose. Those are my members. And it is helpful to remind ourselves of this illustration, why we use that word. Paul says, verse four, for just as in one body we have many body parts and not all of our body parts serve the same function. Here's what Paul is saying. This was new. When he wrote this to the Romans, they had never heard the church called a body and themselves called members. It's like Paul is saying, you know how you have one body, but your body has lots of different parts and they're all, all your parts are very different. Like my liver is nothing like my thumbs, right? They're very different, but they all work together to protect, to provide for. They all serve the interests of the overall body. Your body parts do not get in fights with one another, right? And if you can think of an example when they might, you're thinking of a diseased body. It's sick. Well, within this one body, many body parts metaphor, Paul is teaching that within the body of Christ, within the church, it's very, very diverse. Like, it can be racially diverse, certainly Um the, the universal church is extremely racially diverse because Christianity has spread all over the whole world. But even within a localized area where we're fairly similar racially usually, we're still very diverse. We have different interests, different strengths, different weaknesses, different hurts, different backgrounds. We have different functions within the church, but we have equal value. And we should have the same goal, which is to see Christ glorified and to serve one another in doing that. Verse five, Paul says, "So we who are many, we're one body in Christ, and individually, we are members who belong to one another." You hear what Paul says there? We belong. To each other in the same way like my thumbs and my liver are all so united they, they have that they they work together for the good of my body this always this reminds me of or reminded me of you ever read the screw tape letters c.s lewis it's one of my favorite books and in that book There's a character who's describing what God wants to see people be like. And here's what he says about God. He says, God, God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world, and he could know it was the best, best cathedral in the world. And he could rejoice in the fact that he had built the best cathedral in the world. I'm having a hard time saying that. Without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by someone else. God wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and as gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. You catch what Lewis is saying there? We ought to be so much on the same team, part of the same body, heading in the same direction, that when someone does something for the cause of Christ that is great, I should rejoice in that just as much whether I did it or whether Lori did it or whether Char did it or whether Travis did it. I should be just as happy with what someone else does for the cause of Christ than I should be with what I do. Whatever we learn about spiritual gifts, whether it's in this sermon or or some other area or time in our life, it has to be kept right here. I've been gifted with with some ways that I can be of service to someone else. Um, I should keep my face to the coal. And I should be just as happy when someone else is noticed for their service as if it was me being noticed for mine. All right, well, let's get to some spiritual gifts. Verses 6 through 8 is the rest of what we'll, we'll study this morning. Paul, he lists some gifts that God had gifted at least to the church in Rome that he's writing to. Now, I want to tell you just in general, my idea, my, the way I view spiritual gifts. This is my opinion here. Okay? You don't have to agree with this part. But God, has, God saves people. He redeems people, correct? And God saves people. He redeems people. He res- rescues people out of the world. And once they're saved, they are a part of the church already. And God saves people that have certain aptitudes, abilities, talents, and conditions that they already had. God saves them, rescues them and gives them as a gift to the church. So the spiritual gift is me to the church as much as it is what I have. Does that make sense? That's, my, that's what I think spiritual gifts are. They are gifted to the church. So whatever my gifts are, they are for you. Whatever your gifts are, are for someone else. Because this whole thing is about be humble. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought and love one another. We're just in the middle of those two things. And Paul says, you're a gift to the church to do those things, to love others humbly. Another thing I want to say about spiritual gifts, we're not going to see the whole list of spiritual gifts today. In fact, whatever book we were going through, whatever list of spiritual gifts we find in the scriptures, we'll never see the full list because the lists are always different. Every time we see them in the Bible. Another, sorry, personal opinion alert. Okay? You don't have to believe this. This is just me, not the official position of the church or anything. I don't think we have a full list of the spiritual gifts when we add up all of the New Testament lists. Because I think anything I am gifted with in aptitude or ability or desire that can be a benefit to the church is a spiritual gift. For example, musical ability is never listed as a spiritual gift in the New Testament. Can someone who is gifted musically be a gift to the church? Of course. I think that's a spiritual gift. If someone is really has an aptitude and does well in technology, did Paul ever write that one down as a can that be a gift to the church? Yes. So if you don't see your gift listed today, that's okay. You can be a spiritual gift free agent, right? And try different things. Just because Paul didn't write them here today, don't. Don't. Don't lose heart. All right. So some things we do know about spiritual gifts. We're we're, we're many. We're all supposed to be serving the same body. We belong to one another. So whatever giftedness we have, it's for each other. And do you have something just because of who you are that could benefit other Christians? Yes or no? The answer is yes. You know how I know? Because Paul says, we have different gifts. We have different gifts. By the way, when I talk about serving the church, I am not talking about this metal building. That this building is not the church. You are not in the church. You are the church. So you can serve the church outside of this building. In fact, you have many more opportunities to do that. You just have to find another Christian. And serve them in some way. We have different gifts. And why do we have them? We have them, or how did we get them? We have them by the grace given to us. In other words, whatever my gifts are, I don't have them because I am awesome or that because it makes me awesome. I have them because God is awesome. And he gave me to this group of people to, to, to use my gifts to bless others. Same with you. We have them by the grace of God. So, some gifts. The first gift Paul lists in this list is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy. And I'm planning, and I'm studying, and I'm writing this sermon, and I get to prophecy, and I go, oh boy, what are we going to do with this? I almost stopped and wrote a whole sermon about what I'm going to tell you about in the next five minutes, because I think it's important that I explain to you what the position of this church is. Now, the pastor agrees with the position of the church, but we're going to talk about a a certain group of spiritual gifts, usually called the sign gifts, for just a few minutes. And I am going to tell you what our church believes about those sign gifts. First, and prophecy is one of those. So before we talk about prophecy specifically, we're going to talk about the sign gifts in general. All right, the sign gifts, and I put that in quotes because you won't see them called this in the scriptures, okay, but that's what they're usually called are these prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, healing, and working miracles. God, in the early days of the New Testament of the church, there were people that had those gifts. They were gifted to the church and they could prophesy. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. They spoke in tongues or they interpreted tongues. A word about that. The word tongue is a word for language. My mother tongue is English, right? That's my tongue. Um, Acts chapter 2. First time we see this happen in the New Testament. Jesus has ascended into heaven. At Pentecost, Peter, as the, uh, as the leader of the church, stands up and he gives a sermon that people who are streaming into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, they all hear. And it goes down like this. Peter is speaking in his mother tongue. So he's probably speaking Aramaic. But there are other people from different parts of the world showing up and they start to go like this hey, this dude's a Galilean. Why is he speaking, like, I speak Greek. I'm surprised to hear him speaking Greek. And somebody else goes, no, he's not speaking Greek. Like, I speak Swahili. He's speaking Swahili. I can understand him just fine. And somebody else goes, no, like, I speak Swedish. And I can clearly tell he's speaking Swedish. Those are not the languages. I just made those up, okay? And what was happening was, Peter was speaking in one language and other people were hearing him in, in, his own, in their own language. It was a miracle. Speaking in tongues is discussed four times in the New Testament for sure and maybe a fifth. So it happened. Um, healing. The Apostle Paul and some other Apostles they legit healed people like the way Jesus healed people. Like, I know there's something wrong with you. I'm going to heal you. Now there's nothing wrong with you like that. The apostle Paul, there's a story in acts where people were taking his handkerchief and touching other people with Paul's handkerchief. This is before COVID. Nobody was freaked out by that. Right. And, he would, they would touch people with Paul, some piece of cloth that Paul had, and they would be healed. It was miraculous. Uh, and generally, uh, working miracles is listed sometimes. That's The apostles raised people from the dead on a few occasions. There were others who had these gifts undeniably. Now, the reason they are called the sign gifts, or referred to as the sign gifts, is because... That was the sign that after Jesus had ascended into heaven, those miracles were the sign that this is the people that Jesus is working through now. It was the sign, mainly to unbelievers, that this is, this is where God is working. My position, the the official position of this church, but you do not have to believe this to go to church here, But the official position of this church is something called cessationism, not not Right? I don't believe that Nebraska should leave the Union. That's not what we're talking about here. Cessationism is the belief that these sign gifts were given to people in the early days of Christianity, but that those gifts ceased to be in operation as gifts by the time the New Testament was finished. I want to share with you a little bit of evidence to support that position. Okay? The Apostle Paul definitely had the gift of healing. He could heal whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted. But by his later, the later uh, letters that he wrote, we read stuff like this. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 25, Paul writes, But for now, I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. He's my brother. He's my co-worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's your messenger and minister to me in my need. Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, I want to let you guys know, Epaphroditus became so ill that he almost died. But God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would would not have grief on top of grief. There's one. To Timothy, Paul's protege, young pastor. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine. Maybe that will help with you being sick all the time. 2 Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy again, hey, Sorry, Trophimus couldn't come. Trophimus, I left ill in Miletus. Here's why I show you those. There's three people Paul loved like crazy and were warriors in the gospel that were sick, and Paul didn't heal them. If Paul was still healing people, like if I'm Epaphroditus or Trophimus, I'm like, what the heck, Paul? Why won't you heal me? He doesn't tell Timothy to find a healer or, or why don't why aren't you healing or come see me and I'll heal you? He says, I don't know. Why? So that's some evidence that I think this was uh, reducing by later in the New Testament. Here's another one. Galatians. I think is the first uh, book that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament some other people think 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and I won't fight you about that but it's early Galatians written very early here's the kind of the main idea of Galatians Paul was telling the Galatians do not abandon salvation that salvation is an act of God's grace that comes through faith alone and there were people who were starting to do that they were adding the law to grace and look at the, at the top of the screen. Here was part of all Paul's argument. He said, Does God then give you the spirit and work miracles among you right now by your doing the works of the law or by you believing what you heard? Do you see what Paul says there? He says, Galatians, look around at all the miracles that are happening in your church. When did those miracles start? When people started Doing the law? Or did did those miracles start when people believed in Christ? The miracles were the sign that salvation is by faith in Christ. Look around at all those miracles. That's Galatians. Now we're going to fast forward about 15 years-ish to the book of Hebrews. The author of the Hebrews, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews has the same argument. He's telling a different group of people, don't give up on faith in Christ. But his argument's different. He says this about faith. He says, the gospel, it was first communicated through the Lord. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the apostles. While God confirmed the apostles' testimony with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you see the difference? By 15 years later, the author of the Hebrews does not say, "Look around at all the miracles that are going on." He says, "Do you remember when the apostles were around and all those miracles were going on?" The reason he does, I think the reason he doesn't say, "Look around at all the miracles that are happening in your church," is because they had stopped. As a gift. As a gift. In fact, if we put the epistles, the letters, in the New Testament in the order in which they were written, approximately, the the order of the books of the New Testament are not chronological. Do you know that? Do you know what order they are in? They're, They're first by author, so all of Paul's are first. And you know what order those are in? They're from biggest to smallest. That's the order. It's not chronological at all. Okay. So if you put them in chronological order, it would look approximately like this. James probably first, then Galatians, then, okay? These over here in the left-hand column, all of these, these are all of the early epistles and they all mention those sign gifts, the miraculous gifts. By Romans our passage today, it's interesting only prophecy And then something interesting happens. By the time Paul gets locked up, by the time Paul's in the in the clink, um, and he writes the prison epistles, he writes Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and Philippians. He stops telling churches how to manage these miraculous gifts. He then writes the pastoral epistles. He writes these guys are pastors. And he's telling them how to organize churches, and he no longer tells them how to deal with prophecy and speaking in tongues and mealing and healings and miracles. They're just gone. Not in Hebrews, not in first and Second Peter, not in first and second, third John. they just, they just disappeared. These things were obviously happening very early, but I think we have evidence that they stopped um, even then. Okay, that's the position of our, church. our our statements of faith. says something like this. We believe that the sign gifts have served their purpose and they are not to be expected in the church. And that word expected is important. And I'll tell you why in a second. All right, so prophecy. Paul says this is a spiritual gift that I'm sure is happening in the church in Rome. The biggest question about the gift of prophecy is not like when it stopped. The biggest question about the New Testament gift of prophecy is just what is it? Because nobody ever tells us. I go with a guy named Douglas Moo, not just because he has a great last name, but here is his definition of New Testament prophecy. He says it is proclaiming to the church information that God had revealed to the prophet for the church's edification for building up the church. Here's prophecy. If I was prophesying this morning, I would say, "Hey guys, God just gave me a message and here it is. Thus saith the Lord." That happened in the New Testament. You know why? In my opinion, cuz the church they didn't have Bibles. How do you have church without Bibles? The New Testament hadn't been written, and they didn't have the Old Testament like accessible either. These early Christians, like books didn't exist. There was no such thing as a book bound like this with a front cover and a back cover. Everything was scrolls. They're incredibly expensive. So even though some of the church had experience with the Old Testament, it's not like they could go to the Jews in their synagogue and say, hey, could we borrow Isaiah today? We're having church. Right, that ain't happening. So Christianity's brand new. They don't have the New Testament. So what happened was, like God talked to people. And then those, that was prophecy, and those prophets shared it. And if we would read 1 Corinthians there were some rules about how to do it. Because imagine this. So we came here this morning. We don't have Bibles. We're just going to pray until God starts talking to people. And then here's what would happen. Who can be my prophet? Made eye contact, David, sorry. So David, he says, I got one. All right, come on up, David. David's going to give us a prophecy. And then so David says, God says this, and he just starts talking and tells us what God says. What might you be tempted to think about David and his message? What questions might you have? Like, are we sure that's from God? Like, what did he eat last night? Maybe it's just gas or something. I don't know. And so Paul said the other people who are gifted in prophecy, they have to huddle up and decide whether to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to David's prophecy. But what do you think would happen if the other prophets got together and said, nah, we gotta scratch that one. That one wasn't from God. What happens with the Moliner family? They're probably offended. So this was hard. It led to chaos. And I think it's why Paul said, right now we see what God is saying to us like dimly in a bad mirror. Like they didn't have good mirrors back then, they like looked in shiny metal. Someday we're going to see clearly. And I'm convinced this is what we see that's, that's clear from God. The reason we don't do prophecy. I get very nervous when I see books that are written that are supposedly, I got God told me stuff and I wrote it down. Because hmm. I don't know. Churches get in huge trouble When the direction of their church is because God told me what we're supposed to do. Like we could spend all day telling stories about how that went horribly wrong. So this church believes in not just the inerrancy and the inspiration of scripture, but the sufficiency of scripture. We have God's message. And so we stick to this. Um, Now, all that being said, I need to clarify. Um, yeah, we'll skip that. All that being said, we will clara- I want to clarify what I mean, and I don't mean by cessationism that I think these things stop because I have very good friends. I have friends who are pastors of Berean churches who are not cessationists. They are what's called a continuationist. They think these things are alive in the church. Um, most of the disagreement we have is just like how we define these things. I want to tell you what I, what I don't mean by cessation. Here's usually the criticism of my position, the church, this church's position of cessationism. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit, which is wrong. I absolutely believe in the Holy Spirit. And all of... The ministries, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit, has. He still convicts, He still, all of these things, right? Um, Or um, you put God in a box, that's a very common one, which seems like nonsense to me, I don't even know what really that means. Um, Or you don't believe in miracles. I absolutely believe in miracles. I do. I just don't believe that individuals are gifted in performing miracles. My main spiritual gift is teaching. Do you know how I use my gift of teaching? Like Every Sunday, because I decide to and I use it. That's a spiritual gift. God still does miracles. I just don't believe people are gifted that they can do these things when they want to do these things. The way Paul could heal people when Paul wanted to heal people. Does that make sense? Um, Does the Holy Spirit, so now finally prophecy. Um, Does the Holy Spirit still convict people? Have you ever had this happen? I feel like God is laying something on my heart. God wants me to go talk to Stephanie and encourage her in this way. I think God really wants me to bring something up to Lori. Anybody? Absolutely, God does that. I think he does it all the time. My continuation as friends would call that a gift of prophecy. I don't. Because I think prophecy is, here is a message that we're, the prophecy to me in the New Testament was like reading the Bible now. This is God's word. Right? So we're a little different there. So all of that to go through our first gift that I'm going to tell you you don't have. So if prophecy, if that's your gift, Paul says, make sure you're using it according to this faith that tells you to stay humble and use this in a loving manner. Next, we're going to go through these quickly. Too much cessationism soapbox this morning. Sorry. Service. This word right here, the Greek word is the same word we get the word deacon from. Everyone can serve this, but this is a word where people are interested in, dedicated to, uh, gifted for making sure the church as a whole has the material stuff it needs to do its thing. That's what deacons do. But everyone can do it. So if you're gifted that way, you want to serve that way, make sure you do it humbly with an eye toward loving other people. Next, teaching. Teaching. Here's the difference between teaching and prophecy. I, can st- I do stand up here and say, Here's something the Lord wants you to hear. But the difference is teaching, prophecy is new material from God. God just told me this. Teaching is taking existing material and proclaiming it in a way where we can all learn and understand and hopefully do. That's teaching. Exhortation or encouragement. Um, That is taking what is taught by the church and being gifted in telling people, let's do that. Hang in there. Keep going. People are gifted as encouragers, exhorters. Next, there's a spiritual gift of giving. Here's what I think this means. Everyone can give. We're all commanded to give. Some people are especially gifted in giving, which is one of, in one of two ways. Either I just have a generous heart. Work. Well, I'm, if I'm not careful, I'll give everything away. All right? I, I just want to give. Or God saves somebody out of the world that has more capacity to give, and that person becomes a gift to the church because they have more money than the average person in the church. That can be a spiritual gift. The person who gives, notice this, give liberally or generously but really the word I go with the old King James here when we give we're to give simply with simplicity you know what that means with just one simple motive which is just to help because we can give with hidden motives too to be seen as a giver Jesus made a point of that or to uh, I'm going to give but you have to do what I say right um, so give with simplicity. Again, humbly helping others. He who leads, lead diligently. Hang in there. It's just, leading is just serving lots of people at the same time. And then the one who shows mercy. Mercy is somebody who's gifted in mercy if they, um, or compassion if they really are, can help people who are somehow afflicted. Whether they are afflicted financially, or they are sick, or they are lonely, or just hurting, whatever. And check this the the instruction here. If you're going to show mercy, you have to do it with cheerfulness. Why would that be? It's because if there's somebody who's really hurting and broken, and I help them and I just kind of make it seem like it's just a chore and it's just something I have to do, I'm really not helping. I'm, mating, I'm meeting one need and creating another one, making them feel terrible. So if I'm going to be involved in mercy and compassion, I'd better be able to do that cheerfully and not make it seem like I'm just doing my chores. All right, I've gone over. Like I said, too much cessationism. Soapbox. The main idea is this. We all have things we can do that will glorify Christ by really, really, helping others and and if I am a living sacrifice I will be looking for ways to do that but I gotta be humble others focus and just willing to keep my face to the coal not decide hey I'm gonna try serving until I quit and it gets frustrating and nobody seems to notice We need to keep our faces to the coal of this thing. Find somebody to love. Find somebody to serve again and again and again. Your Lord sees, He notices. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and for the encouragement, the exhortation to be a gift, especially to other Christians. This place is supposed to feel better than the world. And it only will if we are serving one another. Help us to celebrate with others their, their service. And help us to be Christians who keep our faces to the coal. Loving and serving humbly. Others focused to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.